the fact that you can't give me a straight answer about something as fundamental as what a woman is underscores the dangers of the kind of progressive education that we are hearing about. The current policy is eroding our national advantage on stem cell research, and it is undermining the hopes and dreams of millions of Americans. Marriage is the most fundamental institution of civilization. And it should not be redefined by activist judges. Vice President I Biden to never said I oppose fracking. You said it I, on tape. I did show the tape. Put it on your website. I'll put it on. Put it on the website. The fact of the matter is Shorty he's list. flat lying. Hello and welcome to the 538 Politics Podcast. I'm Galen Drew. During the past year, many Republicans have hammered the message that education has run amok under Democratic control and that parents need more of a say in the classroom. They've touched on debates over school closures, masking, how teachers talk about race, gender, and sexuality, and whether transgender students can compete in school sports. You could say that education has become something of a wedge issue an issue that parties use to divide their opposing party and try to shake loose new voters. The history of wedge issues is long and includes debates on everything from free trade to affirmative action, same-sex marriage to stem cell research. Today, we're gonna talk about wedge issues, how exactly they work and how they shape our politics. And here with me to do that is Duke University political science professor, Sunshine Hilligus. She's the author of the book, The Persuadable Voter, Wedge Issues in Presidential Campaigns. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Also here with us is NYU political science professor Patrick Egan. He's the author of the book, Partisan Priorities, How Issue Ownership Drives and Distorts American Politics. Also, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for being here. Yeah, good to be here. Thanks for having me. So let's begin by defining our terms here. So as I understand it, a wedge issue can basically be any issue that divides your opposition. And then by highlighting that issue, your party has the opportunity to pick up new voters who may disagree with their own party on that issue. Sunshine, is there more to it than that? Can it really just be any issue? No, that's exactly it. I guess the thing that I would emphasize is we, as political scientists, often distinguish between what we call positional issues. Those are ones in which, you know, somebody can oppose or support, right? There's two different sides uh, versus valence issues, which is something that kind of everyone agrees. We, we want a strong economy, right? We want more education spending. And it's only once we get down to these positional issues where there's disagreement about the actual goal that that we can find it as a wedge issue. And are wedge issues more commonly social issues? I mean, that's a good question. I, I, you know, the classic wedge issue, frankly, is goes back to education and that's school integration. And so, you know, whether we define something as being, you know, a social issue or a moral issue versus an economic issue is a little bit of framing, right? So, you know, you can talk about something like the environment as being environmental or, or being social. So, so I'm not sure that that is necessarily the, the key, you know, defining characteristic so much as it is something on which there is disagreement about the outcome that we're looking for. Yeah, I'd add to that that, you know, when you think about a wedge issue, when parties and candidates raise 
what they think are going to be wedge issues. They think it's not only going to divide the opposition, but that somehow the position they're taking is pretty close to the center. And so the debate over teaching in schools right now is a good example where I would say the Democrats um, have a lot of different positions on um, what should be taught in schools around race and gender and sexuality, whereas Republicans are pretty united around that. (laughs) And so um, it's one of these things that's uniting your base while we're exposing some division on the other side and perhaps persuading some voters in the middle to say, wow, one party is really far away from what I think about this issue, while the other one is not. Why is education such a high-profile wedge issue today? It seems like for a decade plus, education hadn't really been quite as high profile of an issue and perhaps not as divisive either. Well, I was going to say, I mean, the the thing about education, uh, again, is that that going back to some of the, you know, classic wedge issues of of school integration, that schools were involved and that it has been this debate between local control and national policy to some extent. And and so this idea that there is Democrats that have controlled everything, right, is actually not a, a, a great reflection of the reality when there's local control. And so, um, it's very much in some in some ways a bit of a rhetorical device to be able to say like, oh, the Democrats have driven school policy far from what local constituencies really want, because a lot of school policy is, in fact, still determined at the state and local level. But it's it's one of the things that I think is making this a, an issue that might have some strategic advantage for Republicans. Historically, and this is something I show in my book about issue ownership, this is an issue that is owned by the Democrats and that when you ask the public which party you do trust to handle an issue like education, consistently over the last four or five decades, Americans have given the Democrats ownership on education. And that's in part because Democratic voters, Democratic activists, Democratic candidates consistently call for more spending on education at all government levels more than do Republicans. And I think what Sunshine highlighted, which is a good point, which is that one of the ways that Republicans can kind of get some ground on this issue that's typically a Democratic issue is to make the education debate more about divisive social controversies rather than the bread and butter of spending and teacher salaries and things like that. And so that's what you're seeing here. That's what you saw during the school desegregation debates of the 60s and 70s. And so I think that's one of the reasons why, for example, uh, Glenn Youngkin in, in Virginia really kind of grasped on this kind of um, debate strategy, because it may be effective at getting voters to think about education in more than just, as I said, bread and butter spending terms. You know, we said that in order for a wedge issue to work, at least strategically, is that it should divide the opposing party. Do we know what the divides look like within the Democratic Party on some of these questions like school closures, masking, school curricula on you know race, gender, sexuality and things like that? Is it sort of like a 70-30 proposition? Is it a 50-50 proposition? And then maybe that helps us judge how effective of a wedge issue this actually is, because I know there's been some debate, especially in the wake of the Virginia gubernatorial election, which you mentioned over like, OK, is it education? How do we prove it? 
I think this is one of the things that with an emerging wedge issue is one of the things that creates some uncertainty. And that is, is there's a lot of variation in what you find depending on how you ask the question and what exactly you ask. So if you're asking specifically about something like critical race theory, uh, right, you're going to get a very different breakdown of opinions than if you just ask something about should we be teaching about racial inequality in the schools where the vast majority of, of Democrats and frankly, a lot of Republicans agree. And so this is a thing where I think it comes back to a little bit of the campaign strategy and the messaging is that, you know, what we will likely see is this attempt to really focus on these very narrow aspects of the policy, bringing it away from the bread and butter, away from the spending, but also away from kind of the values, the way from the core discussions into very explicit, narrow policy issues that are really exaggerating both the positions of each side and are where there are these bigger divisions. So you ask about support for LGBTQ students and you get widespread support on both sides. You ask about should transgender youth be on sports teams? There you start seeing the divisions. And and so what we'll see in terms of the rhetoric is an attempt to kind of really focus on, on those very nuanced and very, very specific divisions where that polling shows that there's bigger divides. Because there's not really that big of a divide, even across the parties, when you talk about the general you know, values. Sunshine, you've written a whole book on this, and you use quantitative methods, which we love here at 538, to basically look after an election happens and try to judge did this wedge issue actually work? Did this move voters in such a way that it benefited one party or another? And, you know, looking at the Virginia gubernatorial race and the lessons that the two parties take away from them, it may be helpful to know, do we have quantitative evidence to show that this worked? How would you go about doing that? How do you prove whether or not a wedge issue actually won you over new voters versus just the environment in general? Yeah, it's very difficult. And I, th- I think 538 audiences and, and, and you guys know very well, and, and part of what the message of the book is that there are a lot of important things and consequences to think about beyond just the effect on voters, because the effect on voter is conditional on a lot of other things. So yes, there are some instances in which we can look, for instance, at individual level panel data and find that people changed under different campaign environments. But one of the messages of the book is that even in cases where very few voters are won over, there are consequences for the fact that this is the strategy that the campaigns are using, that it both exacerbates polarization because it creates this sense that this is what the two parties are about. It complicates our interpretation of the elections. And it really kind of focuses attention, not necessarily on the issues that the vast majority of voters want to hear about, which frankly is probably more about education spending, right, than the particular issues around bathrooms. And so in terms of actually finding kind of the causal effects of this type of campaigning, 
it's pretty difficult. It's really, really difficult to find that in the observational world. And again, one example is is to use panel data where you've seen, and, and we, we did that in the book, um, looking historically at this fundamental change in the amount of attention that was spent on the issue of school integration across election cycles in which we had the exact same individuals and we could find this shift in defection rates. But outside of those type of data collections, it tends to be hard to actually find evidence of it. In popular media, I play a part in this because I work at NBC News on election night uh, writing up exit poll results. We use exit polls as a big, big tool to try to interpret what's happened in an election and how to understand why one candidate or one party did well. I think all the way back to 2004 when, to take the issue of marriage equality, that was one of the big uh, things that was the interpretation behind why George W. Bush had won re-election in 2004. A classic wedge issue at that time, I would say, for the Republican side, where they were uh, dividing Democrats on this emerging issue of social equality. And then within eight years, the tables had really turned to the point where you could almost call, in some some places and in some contexts, marriage equality a wedge issue for the Democrats to use as a cudgel against Republicans. So all that is to say that super, super difficult to interpret any one election as being about any one particular issue, but that doesn't stop us in the media and also candidates and parties from trying to take lessons from election results. We've been talking about education as one of the most obvious wedge issues in our politics today. What are some of the other wedge issues? And in particular, I'm thinking, you know, in 2018 and 2020, Democrats, we can tell from the election data, persuaded a bunch of voters who had previously voted for Republicans or sat out elections to vote for you know, Biden or vote for Democrats in a midterm. What kind of issues or wedge issues were Democrats using to kind of like siphon off new voters in their direction? Well, one of the big things in 2018, and, um, and it's been a pretty successful a strategy for the party, again, is a wedge issue that I think was working for the Republicans for a bit and now is back in the Democratic side. The Affordable Care Act was pretty controversial when first introduced, not super popular, uh, particularly as a broad-based idea. And a lot of thought is that Republicans did pretty well in 2010 emphasizing this issue. Eight years later, in 2018, when the policy has been in place for a while, a lot of people have gotten coverage as a result of it. It was a pretty good weapon for the Democrats to say, Republicans, you consistently voted to cut this policy that has proved to be a lot very popular with a lot of Americans. And that's an issue that divides Republicans because you've got ideological Republicans who don't like government spending, but a lot of low-income Republicans who are benefiting from this policy, whereas Democrats are pretty united around uh, liking the Affordable Care Act. So I would say that's a good example, healthcare right now, and particularly the ACA, that can work as a wedge issue for the Democrats in a lot of elections. And while, you know, defining what is an an issue is always potentially tricky, and and I think the Obamacare is is a perfect example of how how you frame it and what you focus on. You know, in 2010, it was like death panels and, you know, it, it was really focused on these very narrow aspects of it that created this division on the Democrat side. And then really the rhetoric and, and the messaging shift to this fundamental just coverage by 2018, 2020. But in truth, right, like Trump is potentially the wedge issue, right, that um, has been looming in 2020 and and I think potentially moving forward. And, and so I think thinking about what that means as an issue, you know, whether it is this notion of what politics should be like or um, this notion of was there illegal behavior that happened, that evaluations of Trump are something that I think are likely to be a wedge issue in the upcoming election. 
So really, it sounds like a wedge issue can be absolutely anything, and it can be used by one party in one election and then sort of switched around and used by the other party in the next election. What determines what rises to the top then of all of the different things that parties can focus on? How do they figure out, oh, let's focus on this one? Is it voters telling politicians? Is it politicians and campaigns telling voters you should care about this? Is it this is something of a, a chicken and egg question? But how does this all sort itself out if it can truly be anything? So you're exactly right that there's a little bit of both. And here's the way that I, I tend to like to explain it is there are constraints, right? If we're in the midst of a war, for instance, or a recession, that, you know, no amount of messaging is going to change the focus of the fact that the voters are going to want to hear about those particular issues. Within those constraints, however, what the candidates are doing is they are looking at the potential coalition that they can build. And in any given election cycle, they have to think about their own background, their own strengths, and they're looking to see where is it that I might be able to pick off from you know the set of independents or the other side, a set of issues, right? Like what are the set of issues that might help to attract, if I make those issues salient, a coalition that gets me over 50%. Now, I, I should emphasize, right, this is in campaigns in which you have to build a coalition. There are certainly lower level races, you know, where there's a lot of gerrymandering, where you don't need to build a coalition between your base and the other side. You have sufficient numbers just in your base to be able to do more of a mobilization campaign. But any election in which you can't win with your base alone, right, you have to kind of look to see based on where the preferences of the potential voters are, where is there a strategic advantage? And so this is keeping in account, right, that there are constraints based on what's going on in the world and constraints based on what your own positions have been in the past, your own background and experiences are. And so it is a little bit of a a chicken and egg in terms of um, sorting that out. On the other hand, we can make some predictions based on both the candidates that are running what's going on in the world and what the public is thinking on a set of given issues. This election in the fall, no matter what the Democrats and what Republicans want to do, is going to be a lot about the economy. If the conditions uh, remain as they are, that's what Americans are thinking about. That's what the news is talking about. And so both sides have to talk about the economy. Right now, it's a good issue for the Republicans, and it certainly looks like it will be in November. Whereas there are other issues where I think parties are literally, or not literally, but metaphorically throwing issues at the wall and seeing what sticks, right? Seeing what works with voters, see what seems to be a good frame to work at that kind of puts cast your side in a good light. So there's sort of that trial and error that's going on 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 both sides. And does this happen in focus groups or does this happen when a politician just stands up in front of a crowd and says something and sees, you know, if there's an applause, if, you know, Fox News or MSNBC calls them up to talk more about it? How do you throw an issue at the wall and see if it sticks? No, no, you're, you're, you're working with consultants and doing lots of polling. You're looking at the polling data at, at the constituents to see where there might be some strategically advantageous issues on which to emphasize. Again, in some cases, it's going to be also looking to see, you know, what was successful in the neighboring set of candidates or with the incumbent or, you know, so they're taking into account both what their own 
background experiences, strengths are, the weaknesses of their candidate they're running against. And so the spaghetti on the wall is is not literally happening on the fly. But um, all of us have a diverse set of predispositions, values, attitudes of things that we have opinions about. And what campaigns are trying to do is raise the salience of one of those advantages um, them. And sometimes that will work in terms of getting the media to talk about a given issue, and sometimes it won't, right? Because it requires not only the candidate talking about it, but also the media helping to, to be the mouthpiece and emphasizing that point more and more. And then it also becomes an issue a little bit of how it gets framed. So you take COVID in 2020 as being something that like, is it going to be an advantage or disadvantage? You know, how will that one divide up? And it partly is outside of the control of the candidates in, in terms of determining how exactly that's going to be described and framed and in terms of the decision making of the voters. I also think that it often arises with the emergence of a specific candidate with a specific message. And I think Trump's a good example where, as an outsider to the Republican Party in 2016, he said, look, there's a set of issues that none of the other candidates is talking about that it turns out a lot of Republican voters care about, like Social Security or free trade. You know, there used to be kind of a Republican consensus on these issues. We should cut and reform Social Security and maintain uh, free trade. And it turns out a lot of Republican voters wanted to hear a different message, and they heard it from Trump really for the first time. So candidates themselves can sometimes be agents of issue improvisation, if we want to put it that way. And um, that also lends a certain amount of unpredictability to the whole thing. This brings up a data question here, which is, in order for a wedge issue to work, voters on both sides of the aisle have to have views that are somewhat idiosyncratic, not necessarily conform to their party's policy positions top to bottom. Otherwise, they're not experiencing that cross pressure and you can't really drive a wedge between that voter and their party. How common is it for a voter to not actually agree with their usual party of choice on all the issues? Is it basically everyone or are most people, if they're a Democrat or vote for Democrats, they basically agree with them on the issues. And if they're a Republican, they basically agree with Republicans on all the issues. Almost everyone disagrees with their party on some issue, particularly when you get it down to the nuances of those positional issues. It's probably helpful to remember that the 538 audience is not like the general American public. People do not spend their days thinking about politics all the time. And even this notion of, of party polarization and these deep-seated loyalties aren't necessarily something that people think about on a daily basis. And so, you know, it absolutely is the case that we have seen some decline in the extent of that variation in the party coalitions over time, but still the vast majority of Americans disagree with their affiliated party. Again, like I, I use that, you know, because we don't have membership into the parties. We don't, you know, it's not that, that people are donating money to the parties. It is that on a general basis, they're voting a particular way or, you know, like one party more than the other. But it is not at all a requirement that, that they agree with them on every issue. And particularly when we're talking about issues that are 
emerging. And this is, you know, when you think about within the space of education policy, that that's really what we're talking about is a set of kind of new uh, critical race theory and how to treat transgender youth. Like this is not something that's longstanding and been part of the party platforms for a long time, right? These are emerging issues. And so you're more likely to find disagreement within the party coalitions. Does something lose its utility as a wedge issue, potentially if it's been around for a long time and the party has sort of sorted based on that issue? I'm thinking here like abortion, maybe a little bit or immigration that the parties over the past couple decades have become just more internally aligned on those issues. So does a wedge issue lose its power if it's sort of used too much? I think the case of abortion is an interesting one, right? Because there remain a lot of people who disagree with their their political party yeah. on issues of abortion. Again, once you get into the nuances of those policy views, especially, but people have recognized, right, where the party stands, and they just has, have not considered that to be the most important thing on which to base their votes. And so the dilemma then is, is, is there any chance that a candidate or a campaign or a particular environment can raise the salience of that issue so that somebody feels like that that issue is at stake in the election, right? And for a lot of those cross-pressured partisans on the issue of abortion, they've just kind of either come to terms with the fact that like the one person running for president isn't going to, to be what's what's going to be the decision maker about this policy issue, or it's just not as important of an issue for it to be decisive until it is, right? And so I think that issues of gay rights in particular are ones where for the log cabin Republicans for a very long time, right, was something that there was a comfort level with that not being sufficient to um, warrant defection until there were campaigns in which it did become sufficient. And so the question is, is can an issue really be made to be important enough that people feel like that's the policy that's at stake in the election? And that's really tough when the economy's going to be commanding all of the attention in terms of people's interests. I'm thinking a little bit about the issue of crime uh, right now as an example where you kind of think that an issue might be kind of settled and crime has long been owned by the Republicans uh, for you know the last few decades. But new wrinkles um, and new news events arise that cause some reshuffling or some reconsideration of the party's positions. And I think, you know, heading out of the summer of 2020, it looked at first like the Democratic side was really united on how we should be thinking about crime and police reform and racial inequality and racial injustice. And here in New York City, a year later, we have a, a Democratic mayoral primary where it turns out there's a lot of different views on how to think about crime and think about policing. And, and a lot of the more conservative views come from voters of color who are living in uh, neighborhoods that uh, have to worry about more about crime. So I, I would say while it's possible that a long settled issue is less likely to be considered a wedge issue, there can be developments in these issue spaces that lead to all kinds of new political opportunities and dynamics that candidates and parties want to take advantage of. Broadly speaking, what are some of the clearest issues that divide the Republican and Democratic parties internally? I think we've talked about some of them here, but what are some other ones that we should just pay attention to and observe how campaigning on those issues might shape our politics? 
I think the environment is a good example where that's one that pretty much unites Democrats uh, around a lot of the basics, including things like, is global warming happening and is it caused by human activity? And that's one where you get a lot of division among Republicans about whether it's uh, something we need to worry about and how we should address it. It's generally a pretty low salience issue, um, and climate change is something that more educated people tend to worry about more than people who are worrying about more basic concerns like putting food on the table. But that is one I would put on the list of a wedge issue that, if successfully employed by Democrats, uh, can divide Republicans. I would also point to immigration as one. But again, I want to be careful in saying, you know, when you talk about anything that is a broad issue area, the devil's always in the details, right? And that we find wildly varying opinions in public opinion polls, depending on whether we're asking about broad questions about is the country better off with immigration or, or not versus very specific, narrow policy areas. And there are parts of immigration where, you know, I think that that it could be successful if it came down to just those very specific areas. Which party is divided by immigration? The Democratic Party. Actually, both of them are, uh, frankly, right? Um, Both parties are. And so that's where it comes down to how do you frame the issue and and what do you, you make it about? And again, I think that in terms of where you're likely to see something happen is it, you know, if you have some type of major event, right, lots of deaths on the border, or, you know, like those are the type of things that can really highlight a very narrow aspect and divide one or other of the party coalitions, depending on what the nature of, of a particular event might be. Right. So, yeah, immigration is a great example where you ask the American public, should there be a path of citizenship for unauthorized immigrants here in the U.S.? You get something like 70 percent of America says yes. Most Democrats say yes and some Republicans say yes. So that makes it a wedge issue for the Democrats. But then if you say, uh, should we get rid of orders? <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, that's one where you do get some buy in on the most left side of Democratic Party. And I certainly hear that among the more radical chic side here in New York. Uh, and that's obviously one where most Americans are going to say, no, no way. We need borders and we need immigration control. So to go back to Sunshine's point, there's there's a lot of different ways to talk about these issues and um, they can divide one side or the other, depending on how successfully they're deployed. And I mean, gun control is one of those that has so clearly divided the Republican Party for a long time when you talk about a lot of very specific policies, but it's been impossible to kind of bring the conversation down to those particular policy areas. And and so this gets to, on the one hand, the frustrating aspect of being a researcher and, and trying to quantify some of these things or predict them, right? That, that sometimes it, it becomes much easier to look back and see where um, something that was thrown on the wall, you know, that spaghetti on the wall was successful or not. And there is a tendency by the pundits to, to say, oh, if somebody won, obviously that wedge issue was was important. And of course, you know, I think your audience knows knows better than to go with that line of reasoning. But it does highlight the complexity that this wedge issue on gun control has long existed. And yet the potential, right, like we, we have just not seen the ability to kind of make that salient for the particular policy areas. It so clearly divides the Republican Party. So, It sounds like, in some ways, in order to identify a wedge issue, you have to have a good amount of information about voters. So this is the part where I maybe break polling enthusiasts' hearts, (laughs) but is this only possible because of all of the sort of 
quantitative research that we do on voters and elections? The one thing I would say is on the one hand, yes, but even in the absence of data, the candidates are making assumptions, right? And they're making assumptions based on behaviors, they're making assumptions based on demographics, they're making assumptions. And so even without very specific polling data, like this analysis is going on regardless of whether there's actual empirical evidence. And, you know, there's some terrific research that has really documented the extent to which um, elected officials really have in their minds the wrong views of the American public. And so to some extent, right, like that bias in the absence of data could have consequences. But yes, and, and one of the things that, that I talk about in the book is that the risk associated with taking positions on divisive issues, candidates have been wi- more willing to take that risk in part in today's information environment. Whether that that information is correct or not, because sometimes it's not, they feel emboldened, right, that they have a sense, they have their thumb on what the public wants, and they have the ability to micro-target them if they view their position as being too risky. Wait, so before modern polling, and obviously we have even more granular data on voters than just polling allows, But before our modern information environment, were there wedge issues or was the strategy just like be really opaque about your position on everything and try to win with like the force (laughs) of your personality? No, I I mean, there have been wedge issues forever. I think part of it, what happens is that parties and candidates are very entrepreneurial. So to win, candidates are always kind of testing the waters and candidates arrive usually with a coalition and sometimes a conscious that brings certain issues to the fore. Um, and makes that person, makes that candidate uh, sort of embody a set of ideas and issues that are put up for consideration by the electorate. So while it perhaps is not as scientific and precise with the kind of analysis you can do with quantitative polling data, this is the staple of electoral politics and democracies is that candidates and parties try things out and they stick with what they think is working. And the example I give in the book is is the whistle stop tour. So at one time, at different stops, candidates would would say different things to the particular local environment. But the way that they were getting information was from you know the local party machine, right? Who had their they, they had their sense of what the public wants from conversations as opposed to from polling data. But generally speaking. Yes, it is the case that particularly as we've shifted from kind of broadcast, very clunky data about, you know, demographic groups based on national polls where you couldn't really do that much, that we actually have seen this shift from more issues being talked about, um, more divisive issues being talked about. And so while candidates have always tried to keep a sense of the pulse of the the public through different means, um, it is the case that with this new information environment that they haven't been emboldened to take more risks with respect to divisive issues than they may have in the past. Given that wedge issues can be quite effective at bringing over the persuadable voter, how does a party defang a wedge issue? Talk about something else, <laughs> right? I don't know. What would you say, Sunshine? That's what, that would be my, I mean, just change the subject, right? If you are fighting a debate on terms that are not good for your side, tell everybody to look over, on the, look over there. <laughs> and uh, often that's a very effective strategy. And even more so, right? It goes back to on the case, you know, of what is motivating our conversation in the, the first place is, is about education. I think this is a classic example where what the Democrats need to be able to do is bring the conversation back to 
education spending, right? Overall, kind of where they have strengths. And and this is the constant back and forth that we see is like one side's going to attempt to make it about transgender youth in the bathrooms that they use, whereas the other side's going to try and focus it and reframe it in a different way. And so it's not even just about shifting to a, a different topic altogether. It's also about how a given issue can be framed. Wrapping up here, as people who spend a lot of time looking at the data and thinking about campaigns and issues, are there wedge issues waiting in the wings that you see from looking at the data that you imagine that future campaigns are are going to be fought over? I wonder about, uh, on the Democratic side, uh, affirmative action, where, again, that's an issue that can be framed in a lot of different ways. You can uh, set the lens on many different aspects of that issue. But when you look at polling among uh, Democrats, and of course the Democratic Party is much more racially and ethnically diverse than the Republican Party, even among Democratic voters of color, there's a lot of disagreement about the utility and attractiveness of affirmative action policies. And I think as the party continues to navigate this new world where it really relies on voters of color to win elections, that's an issue that's going to perhaps be a bigger and bigger challenge for Democrats to navigate. And rather than picking a particular issue, I think that one area that I think that both sides are kind of looking at is is what is the Latino voters, what are they going to do? And there's a lot of heterogeneity within that group, a lot of heterogeneity in issue positions as well. I suspect that that's one of the groups where there will be, you know, some attempt to figure out how to look at, you know, what are the issue positions that advantage the Democrats? What are the issue positions that advantage the Republicans? And it wouldn't surprise me to find some strategizing over that group in particular. All right. Well, let's leave it there. Thank you so much, Sunshine and Patrick. Good to be with you. This was fun. Thanks. Sunshine Hillegas is a political science professor at Duke University, and Patrick Egan is a political science professor at NYU. My name is Galen Druk. Tony Chow is in the virtual control room. Claire Bidigari-Curtis is on audio editing. Chadwick Matlin is our editorial director. And Emily Vineski is our intern. You can get in touch by emailing us at podcasts at 538.com. You can also, of course, tweet at us with any questions or comments. If you're a fan of the show, leave us a rating or review in the Apple Podcast Store or tell someone about us. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you soon.